Well, welcome everyone to Barabbas Road Church, the Sunday after Easter. So all of you that are here are the most hardcore Christians of the year, so welcome to that fun, fun label. So welcome to Barabbas Road Church. And the the text we're going to be doing today is the text that I did not choose to do on Easter Sunday. And as we go through it, some of you will be thankful for that. Um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 34, a phenomenal chapter, uh, if not at first glance, but a wonderful chapter for us. And uh, I'm prone to sometimes go through the text, and usually, whether it's Christmas or Easter or Independence Day or any other day like that, I, I find the text off, often just matches up. But in this case, I decided to not, uh, not try to figure that one out. So um, if you will, go ahead and turn to Genesis 34, and you might be like, I can't do that because I don't have a Bible. Well, we, we took care of that for you. If you look in the aisles, we have Bible ladies right now. I don't see any men, with, but the Bible ladies coming down. If you need a Bible, lift your hands in the air, and a Bible lady will put a Bible in your hands. So that's exciting. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 34, and if you will, stand with me, go to the passage, and let's jump into this fun text here. Genesis 34, this is the reading of God's holy word. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done." But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of of a city. On the third day, 
When they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this brutal and ugly, depraved description in Genesis 34, I ask that you would give us wisdom. I ask that we'd be willing to listen to what you have for us today. I ask that we would see truly the cost of compromise and that we would understand truly the only cure. That, Father, we would see ourselves in this passage, that we would see grace in this passage, even as we can obviously see sin. I ask that you would do your work in our midst for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So that wouldn't have been very easy on Easter Sunday. So it's often told as a sort of famous statement, and maybe you've heard this before, but it's said that the road to hell is, 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 pay, is paved with good intentions. And when someone says that and uses that expression, what they mean to say is nobody usually, you know, the heart is deceitful. Everyone can justify their actions. We all sort of seem to be having good intentions, as, and, and that might seem like what we do then is justified. And so that's an expression we use. It's all, it'll just be thrown out. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. But I would argue that that's m- maybe not even as accurate. If I could rephrase that for us today, I would say that the road to hell is not necessarily paved with good intentions. It's cobbled together by compromises. And that's what our passage is going to be about today, the sin of compromise. Let's take a quick look at a very brief video. I love those creepy videos. I have a bunch of them. They're great. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's set this up for us today. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is one of those passages in Scripture that you're going to wonder why it's here. But I think as we go through it, you will see its relevance to us very quickly. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we have a description of the last days, what it looks like. And I would say it's, it's a fair statement to imagine that almost every preacher has thought that those days are the ones that they're in, uh, especially when you read this description. But here's a description that Paul gives Timothy about these last days. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Here's why. For people will be lovers of self. 
Now, I don't want to move on past that for a moment. Again, I I want to point this out. We, I think, get the prize for this one because we're the generation in all of history that invented the word selfie. So we are definitely in view here. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. In a simple way, if we recognize that this is the culture we're in, and I think it's fair in the most modest way possible to say that this is a reasonable description of our culture. You can go on social media, you can just do that, and you can tell that this is who we are as a people. I mean, this is who we are. This is what we came out from into this building. That's where we came out from. This is our culture. And when we talk about compromise, we have to recognize that there is no compromise with corruption. Paul's argument isn't try to meet them halfway. You know, they're, they're selfish and slanderous and boastful. Just try to meet them halfway. Appeal to them a little bit, and then you give them the gospel. He says, no, avoid them. Stand up against them. You cannot, uh, you cannot uh, compromise with them. And then he goes on further, and he gives them what, what Timothy is to do. Instead, looking at verse 10, he says, you, however, Timothy have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. He's telling Timothy, look, you have not been a part of these things. So there's a, a, a line drawn in the sand. See, there's a line on the stage here. That's a perfect one. There's a line drawn in the sand here that Paul's saying to Timothy. He says, look, the culture and this view is on one side, but you've been looking at me instead. And so you're seeing that there's an either or scenario here. There's truly a choice here, and it's a binary choice. And he says, you followed me, he says. Indeed, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. What does that mean? So sometimes we rephrase that and say all who desire to be a Christian, all who live the Christian life will be persecuted. That's not what that says. It says all who want to live a godly life. What's implicit in this as the cost of godliness? Think about it. It's really simple and straightforward. Not compromising. And that's really why you be persecuted. I mean, imagine if you hang out with your friends and you're having a discussion at the dinner table and someone says, oh, you know, I just think all religions lead to the Lord. And you're like, oh, everything's going so great. You know, this is cool, whatever. You're like, no, that's not true. Sorry, no compromise. You're wrong. Great, that's a great deal. deal. Dinner's ruined. Thanks. Thanks, that's great. I mean, imagine going to this place like, hey, I love everything you're saying. We're just like you with the whole thing. And it's like, yeah, but it's, not, it's not true. It's not true. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't. Uh, partner with you in this one thing. The Pope isn't real. He's not actually the vicar of Christ. I'm sorry, I'm going to say that. I just think it's not true. He's not the vicar of Christ. I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to compromise on that one. Oh my goodness. 
Can you see what happens here? It's not, you're not trying to be a jerk. It's like exactly what he says. You're not persecuted by telling everybody, love each other and let's just all get along. You're persecuted by saying this is true and truth is not coming in degrees. And that's a a powerful statement. He says, if you hold to this, if you want to live a godly life, that's what it looks like. There's no compromise in that. Now there's failures and whatnot, but there's no compromise. And he says, that's what's going to happen. Meanwhile, evil people will go on from bad to worse. And that's really the, the opposite side of things. That compromise sort of slides down that scale. He says to Timothy, but as for you, in contrast to compromise, the source that enables us to not compromise, he says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise. He's referring him to the Bible. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, you don't need to compromise. This truly is not only adequate, but able to help guide us towards godliness. We don't need another thing. So why would I compromise? With it. Why would I say, oh, I love it. I have everything I need, but let me add something else to it and mix it in. If you have a pure glass of water and you say, hey, well, I've got a glass of poop, you know, and you're like, I'll just, com- I'll just put a little poop in my clean water. How's that work out for you? That's a terrible compromise, right? That's what you say. This is, sorry about the analogy. It's the best I got. Um, so he tells them, look, scripture is a thing. And then in chapter four, verse one, he says, after saying all that, he says, I charge you, I, I command you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. He said, I charge you in the presence of every authority that exists. Opposite of compromise is preach the word. And instead of compromising with the word, what does he say? Be ready in season and out of season. Means you don't compromise when it's, when, when it's convenient or when it's not convenient. You preach the word, period. No compromise. Uh, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, if we were to think of this for a moment, what I think we're seeing here from Paul to Timothy is this, that as believers, we're not called to be diplomats. This is what uh, Tozer said it this way. We're not called to be diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. And that's the, that's the absolute God honest truth. The church is meant to be different than the culture. We're called to proclaim the consequences, the casualties, and the character of our compromises. Why? So that we may better behold the cure. And if we don't do those other things, then we won't see the cross for what it is. We won't see the cure for what it is. We won't see grace for what it is. If I could be so bold, if we don't see Genesis 34 and all of its depravity and ugliness, and we don't look at it honestly and see ourselves in it, we will never understand grace or the cross. If you could have a Christianity, if you could have a, a, a biblical story and a narrative that didn't include the, the depiction we see in Genesis 34, you would see the cross less clearly than we're supposed to see it. And so to that end, I'm very thankful for our chapter today. If you will, go to Genesis 34 and let's jump right in. Genesis 34, the main idea of our sermon today is quite simple. Behold the consequence of compromise. Behold the casualty of compromise. Behold the character of compromise. 
Behold the cure, behold the cost, behold the cross. So let's look at this and take it apart. Genesis 34, the first four verses set us up for this terrible, terrible depiction here. It begins and says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Dinah is, is not a stranger to us. When we remember we saw all the children being born to Leah and Rachel um, by Jacob and all the servants here, they had 11 boys and one girl. And there's likely other girls that were born. I mean, that's, that's very possible. But Dinah was mentioned by name purposefully, and we wondered why back when she was mentioned. Because it, with all the other boys, it mentioned something about their name, mentioned something who they were. It was like, oh, and they had Dinah. And they just kept moving. And you're like, why is that there? Well, now we know why. We have a link to who she is. And it's interesting that she's the daughter of Leah. Um, we're going to find that all of Leah's kids turn out to be pretty much not as good as they could be. And uh, as we go forward, we'll get into that for a moment. But in this case, we see that she's the daughter of Leah, and she's the one that she was born to Jacob. And if we remember that story, Jacob favors Rachel, and he favors uh, the, the, the kids from Rachel, but he sort of doesn't favor Leah, and we see that with the children, he less favors them as well. And, and that's sort of the background to this story here. And so it says that uh, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And so this is a big description. You wonder, well, what's so bad about that? I want to go see the women of the land. I mean, I don't know if I would say that if my daughter Kaylee said, hey, dad, I'm going to go out and see the women of the land. I'm like, I don't even know what you mean. What, do you, what does that mean? What is, it, what is that? Is that a code for something? What is that? I don't know. Um, but the women of the land in this case was she wanted to go. They were living there in this area uh, in, the, in the one step into the promised land. And they're living among the pagans, among the people that didn't believe in God. So go back to Genesis 31 verse 13 for a second so I can set this up. Earlier, when Jacob was under the thumb of his uncle Laban, uh, who was sort of tricking him. And we see this whole story about how God's using Jacob, even though he's a terrible guy, to build his nation. And we see that as he's ready to leave Laban and go back to his homeland, back to the promised land, God appears to him in a dream. And in verse 13 of chapter 31, he says to him, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. So God is telling Jacob, I'm the God, and this is the place where I met you in Bethel. Now arise and go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. And so essentially God is calling Jacob to go back to Bethel, back to the promised land. And what happens, what's interesting is that you think that Jacob gets up and goes. And at first glance, he does do that. But on his way, he has to encounter his brother Esau, who he had fled to Laban with originally. And so as he comes across Esau, they have this wonderful meeting. But a few weeks ago, or two weeks ago, when I talked about this, we see that Esau and him, uh, they, they make up, everything looks good. And then Jacob does something interesting. Go to chapter 33, verse 12 for a moment. And if you want to get the jump on where I'm going, it's up on the screen so you know. Um, so in chapter 33, verse 12, it says this, then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I'll go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I'll lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. And so it looks like Jacob's going to follow Esau to Seir. And, and we see Jacob kind of revert to his old ways here. He had just trusted the Lord. He just trusted the Lord that God's going to carry him through. And then he sees Esau. And then instead of just like trusting the Lord, he then tries to sort of manipulate Esau and make it look like Jacob's going to go. And so he says, I'm going to go with you to Seir. So Esau said, okay, fine. Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, well, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. 
So Esau returned that way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth, the opposite direction of Seir. So Jacob lies to Esau and goes to Succoth. And if you remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about Jacob encountering the angel of the Lord on the, one, the other side of the Jabbok River, that's a portion of the Jordan, he actually crossed back over the river towards Laban to Succoth. I mean, he went the opposite direction. So Jacob is, is clearly sort of like off the rails here. He went the opposite direction. And we don't know exactly how long it took place that this whole scenario happens, but it's about 10 years. So he goes over to Succoth, which is over there, and he builds booths and he lives there on the other side of the Jabbok. So Jacob kind of loses his steam a little bit. He loses his faith a little bit. And then it says, verse 18, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. So here's what's interesting. You have to understand. If you miss this one detail, Genesis 34 makes no sense. So you got to catch this. God wants Jacob to go to the promised land. This is the land that God promised to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob. And he wants him to dwell there, to sojourn in the promised land. And across this Jordan River, across the Jabbok right there, across the Jordan River, right one step across the Jordan River, right just, just one step across is Sechem. It's literally like God says, I want you to go to this area. And he's like, okay, I'm right there. He's like just barely in. He's literally one day journey from Bethel, the place God actually wanted him to go. And he stayed there for 10 years. So kind of try to follow this. One of the things we'd like to tell our children is that delayed obedience is disobedience. And that's precisely what we see with Jacob here. And this is you. This is me. This is us. How many of you, I mean, I love this. I meet people all the time. Like, you know, some of these passages of scripture are really hard to understand. I'm like, you know what? The parts that are easy to understand are the hardest ones. How's that going? We don't like the easy parts that tell us very plainly what God wants of us. Those are really hard. And so we kind of go like, oh, I'm going to go a little bit there. I'm like, just enough. But let me talk about this other subject, you know? And that's kind of what Jacob's doing. He's just doing just enough to stay here. But he's really, we see in his heart, he's, he's not supposed to be there. Okay, so he's living among the pagans. His heart isn't right. He's in the wrong place, essentially, in God's plan. And we see God's sovereign ultimately, but still Jacob's not following God what he wants him to do. He's stepped off the path of wisdom. And it's to this end that when we see Dinah go out to the women of the land, here he is in Shechem in this area. And Dinah's like, I'm going to go hang out with these pagan ladies. And why wouldn't she? Because that's where she lives and hangs out and breathes and operates and everything else. There's no God's silent. And what we're going to notice in chapter 34, the entire chapter, is that there's no reference to God. There's no reference to prayer. There's no reference to faith. There's no reference to any of it. If you were just to read chapter 34, you'd be like, wow, the world's terrible. It's all going to burn down. I hate it all. There is no God. There's no reason to live. That's it. That's Genesis 34. There's your Bible. Um, there's nothing. God's nowhere in it. Nowhere. And so I cheated today and I brought us into Gen- the first part of Genesis 35 so you can see that there's actually a story going on with God because it is about him. But um, here we see that the women of the land, she goes out to see them. So that's, that's kind of the story here. And as she goes out, when Shechem, the son of Hamor, so this is the land named after uh, this man Shechem. And so this is what's interesting in the Old Testament. We miss this sometimes. Is that when we see these names, we sometimes think that it's just a story about individuals. And on one level, it is. But on another level, each of these names are representing nations. She went to the land of Shechem. It's called Shechem. It's like, imagine coming to, I, I live in, in Coronado right now. Imagine coming, oh, I'm, I'm going to Matt. Where is that? Oh, down to Coronado. Like, it's so weird. We don't talk like that, right? Um, unless my name was Coronado. Uh, that's a good name. 
Coronado Smith. Anyways, but you get it. Shechem, but that would be cheating. I'd do it the other way around. Anyways, they named lands after them, and, he, and here he is, Jacob, named Israel. That's the land. And so what we have to understand in all of the Old Testament, and if you miss this detail again, you're also going to miss some of the violence and things that are happening, that it's geopolitical. What is geopolitical? Geography and politics. It's geopolitical is like the risk board. It's the, it's the game of nations and nation states. And as we see these names, each one is representative of these nations and nation states. So here we have uh, Dinah hanging out in this nation of Shechem, in this area of Shechem, and the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land. So he's like the main dude in the land. He saw her, he seized her, and he lay with her and he humiliated her. This word humiliated is a wonderful, I'm glad the ESV uses it. It's a wonderful translation pointing out very specifically to us that she was raped. And so this is why this would be a rough Easter sermon as well. We're like, happy Easter, he is risen. Dinah gets raped in Shechem. And so he humiliates her, he rapes her. And afterwards, after he does this, it says that his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. So he didn't just find her and grab her and say, hey, you're with me. But then after he's like, I really actually like you. I think I should be your husband. And so he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. He's like, it's okay. I really love you. And in verse four, so Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now that reference to girl is the word yalda in Hebrew. And it's used only a few times, uh, maybe two other times in the Bible, but it refers to a young girl. And so Dinah is likely about 13 to 15 years old at this stage. So here's a 13 to 15 year old. Now you got to wonder for yourself, what's she doing walking around sort of like without a chaperone, if you will? You didn't do that back then. It wasn't like you hung out because something like this could happen, you know, because you go in the area and this guy's like, hey, let me get her for a wife. I mean, you don't go out unchaperoned, but Jacob's absent in this whole chapter. He's not really saying, he's not like, hey, no, bring one of your brothers uh, because that wouldn't have happened. He just lets her go. Why? Well, because he, did, he was comfortable. He didn't care. He didn't really see a problem. He's like, yeah, go ahead. Go to that concert. Yeah, go to that thing. It's fine. We'll see you there. Yeah, get a Facebook account. It's all good. You can do your thing. But he humiliates her. What is going on here is that Jacob's compromise by not following the Lord led to consequences. Now, a few weeks ago or a month, I don't know when it was, but I, I preached and talked about how the idea that sometimes our suffering is based on nothing we do. That, you know, why was this man born blind? Did he sin in, or in the womb or did his parents sin that he's born blind? And Jesus says, no, he was born blind so that I could heal him right in front of you. No one sinned. Sometimes bad things happen to you and it, it's because God has a plan. But sometimes bad things happen to you because you're an idiot and you've done things wrong. And that's what's happening in this chapter. And Jacob's delayed obedience, Jacob's compromise, his little compromises. I'll just stay here. It's very similar to Lot. Oh, I'll just stay right by Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll just stay right outside. I'll pitch my tent outside it. And then the next scene, you see him in, in Sodom and Gomorrah as like a mayor of the city and stuff. So we see that compromise sort of slips you down that slope. Well, here's Jacob compromising and the consequences affected his daughter, Dinah. She paid for his compromise. Now, how does this relate to us? Is there anything here for us? We'll go to for 2 Corinthians chapter 6 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. There's so much truth in this passage today that it's uncomfortable. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the Apostle Paul is describing to the Corinthian church, which is a terrible church in so many respects, but it was a true church. He says to this church, Do not be unequally yoked 
with unbelievers. Do not be unequally yoked. This means don't, like when you think of yoking um, a team of horses to a carriage, you know, that they're going to travel it, don't put like thoroughbred horse, you don't put it next to like a bull that's going to just like go like this, or a bull that's going to go chasing this way and the horse this way. The idea is that he's giving a practical example of how we're not supposed to do it. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is the advice that Paul's giving to the Corinthian church. In other words, we have to be careful about our partnerships, church. And we've talked about this as it relates often. We talk about this about um, dating non-Christians. We talk about this as it goes into some of your business relationships, into some of your um, friendships and the, the way we have it. We're certainly able to be friends with non-believers. We're certainly able to do these things, but we're not to be, give our hearts to them. We're not to uh, associate with any other group before the church in that sense. Does that make sense? He says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Well, here's why. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What do they have in common? Like, they don't go together. Purity and corruption don't compromise at all. It just, purity, if it compromises corruption, becomes corruption. I mean, that's what happens is they have no partnership. What fellowship has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? That's a description of Satan. Or what portion, and in this case, does a believer share with an unbeliever in, in terms of heaven and hell? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, this is your truth. This is the absolute truth statement that this world, as beautiful and wonderful as it is, is the closest to hell you're ever going to get. That's it. The suffering you experience in this world is the most suffering you're ever going to face. And then we have heaven. If you're a non-believer, this world and all its crappiness is the closest to heaven you're ever going to get. What, what, do you, what do those two people have in common? You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the answer. I mean, that sounds cr- cruel and mean. It's not cruel if it's true. Someone's got to say it. And the Bible tells us to say it. Preach the word, in season, out season. Well, it's in season right now, so let's go. Um, he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Mixing Christ, which is God, with idols. Why? Why does he say this? Why we are the temple of the living God. He doesn't say you, singular, but we, plural, are the temple of the living God. We're not temples. That's significant. We are the temple of the living God. What does that mean? Cumulatively, yes, God indwells each of us individually as believers in Jesus Christ, but corporately, we, we corporately are one temple, not temples. So this isn't about, again, like, you know, don't eat GMO food because you're the temple. This isn't about work out the hard body of Christ. You know, it's not it's none of that. It's we corporately are the temple. So he says, what partnership, you being unequally yoked, why would you do that? Because why we are the temple? What, notice where he's going to. This is the part that we never want to talk about. He says, for we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Not person, but people. Therefore, y'all, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Very simple. Let me just say this in the most basic way possible. Casual compromise has made defilement normal rather than rare in the church today. In the same way that Dinah was defiled, the church is regularly defiled by unequally yoked partnerships and relationships and and unrepentant sin in such a way that it defiles God's church and it's normative. And in scripture, it describes to the Corinthian church that this is extraordinary that it should happen. 
That if someone were to do something like this, it would be extraordinary. If you take pure water and drop one little piece of sewage into it, that's an extraordinary accosting moment that you recognize. But if the water's already murky and gross, you don't even notice it. And my friends, that's where we exist today. That's where we exist as Americans. That's where we exist in our culture. I'm, 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 I, I think that it's impossible to miss this, but go back to 1 Corinthians 6 because there's just a little bit more on this I want to point out that has a relating to Dinah and Jacob's compromise. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says this, all things are lawful for me. And that's true. In Christ, we have freedom and we're not following the law. He says, but not all things are helpful. And so there's this idea that we have a new heart. We, want it, we have a certain goal and certain things in mind and say, hey, that's not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Well, that seems pretty clear. And God raised the Lord and also raised us up by his power. All right, that sounds great. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. What is he saying? He's not saying, hey, when you sin, when you compromise, it hurts you. He says it hurts me. It hurts all of us. I'm not making that up. That's what he's saying. You're joining all of us to this. We are called the body, singular, of Christ, and we're all individually members of it. And so imagine getting caught for adultery and say, oh, that wasn't me. That was my face kissing that person. Well, that wasn't me. That was, you know, my hand on Facebook. You know, my, that wasn't me. That was whatever it is, you know, like you don't be too creative. But, uh, but you get it. And, and so you, the idea is you don't say, well, that's just that one member. Your whole body is guilty of that. Do we recognize this? This is what happens in the church. It's a terrible, terrible description. It's, it's terrifying. And we say to ourselves, well, wait, isn't the church supposed to be a thing where we're all welcome? Yes, we certainly are, but it's also there's a purity of the church. We're welcome because we are repentant people. That's, the, that's who they are, right? And so unrepentant sin that exists in the church that we justify and compromise with defiles the church, defiles everyone. And in no area can I see this as more apparent than with the way that we say, oh, I'm going to go out with this atheist, this non-believer, this person. It happens all the time. I've seen so many people in our church get shipwrecked because of that. Some of you in this room, I mean, that's, it's, it's the life. It's, it's the truth. It's what happens. And, it, and you think, oh, well, it's okay. Why would God care? Why would God hold me back? It hurts everyone. It hurts everyone. He says, do you know, do you not know that He who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, one flesh. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Are we one flesh with the world? But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Not his body, the body. The body. That's the significant part here. It's outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And I would argue it's the body of Christ. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now here's saying that we are individually temples of the Holy Spirit of whom you have from God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So he's talking about individuals and how it relates to us corporately. And so Spurgeon once said it this way. He said, the reason the church at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Think about that. 
Why aren't people sitting outside just lined up to come and hear the gospel? Is it because the gospel isn't beautiful? Is it because uh, the seats aren't comfortable enough? Because we don't have enough entertainment? Because we don't have these things? Now, I don't want to pick on anyone. I don't want to say this. I'm just saying that this is something that should cause us pause. It should cause us to soul search and to look and to care about these things. And in the same way that Jacob, his sin, his depravity in this case, his delay caused a real consequence to his daughter. And it just goes on and on. And it just circles and it circles the church. And it goes on and on. And this is, this is why this is extremely relevant to us today. Behold the consequence of compromise. Now let's look at what happens. The next verses here are sad is the best way I can say it. They're not nice, fun verses to reflect on. Um, if you wake up and we're doing a devotional and read these, you're like, I'm not sure. It says, now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. And he said, what are you doing? I should have gone to Bethel. What are we doing here? That's it. We're out of here. Let's go. No. His sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. He's like, well, they'll come and talk. There's a couple things here. I don't want to read too much into this, but I'm going to read a little bit into it. Jacob maybe is waiting for his sons that are the brothers to Dinah that are related by birth to Leah. Maybe Jacob's like, oh. Jacob seems very worldly in this passage. He seems unaffected. Silent. Just not saying anything. We know that Jacob is a passionate person. We've seen him when he met Esau. What did he do? He wept upon him. He said, oh, brother, I've seen you as like seeing the face of God. We see Jacob passionately wrestling with the Lord at Jabbok. We see Jacob full of passion, full of fire, full of spit, just ready to go. And with dying, he's like, uh, 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 what happens? And Hamor, the father of Shechem, who's actually united with his child, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry. Because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Now, what's fascinating here is that it references in Israel. There's a sense in which, and this is really significant for us as we read this, there's a sense in which the the sons and Jacob and all of them recognize themselves as a geopolitical force in the risk board. The church isn't like this. We're not, we don't have any pieces on the board. We don't have a nation, a country, whatever. But in the Old Testament, in the, the nation of Israel had borders, it had, you know, armies, it had concerns whether about economies, it had, you know, the whole idea, trade stuff, very different than, than the church. And so this geopolitical concern we see express itself where they're upset by what's going on. And I want to point out a few things because they're about to commit major violence against them. He says, and just so keep in mind his reference to Israel, such a thing must not be done. So they're mad. But Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I'll give. Ask me for a great bride price and a gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. 
So what's interesting here is they recognize this shouldn't be done in Israel. And then the contrast is, well, hey, why don't we become Israel? Why don't we join you? Why don't we become one people throughout this? Why don't we make marriages? Why don't we have an alliance, essentially, through all of these things? And we know that this is a bad thing. If you look, look at Exodus chapter 22 for a moment. Look at Exodus 22. This is one of the hardest things to understand, but when you understand it, what's going on, you'll understand a little bit more. What should have happened after this terrible immorality? In Exodus 22, verse 16, it says this, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. That sounds terrible. And yet, what do we see here in this passage? We see that they certainly took marriage seriously and there's no such thing as free sex. They're like, if these guys go together, there's a cost involved. There's a cost. And if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. In other words, what should have happened is Hamor should have come with Shechem and said, we want to marry Dinah. Our heart is set upon her. And Jacob said, no, we are not going to unite with you. What you did is reprehensible. I don't want you to have anything to do with my daughter. And yes, you owe me a large sum of money and get out of my sight. That's what should likely have happened. But go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We have to make sense of this. I want to address it briefly Deuteronomy 7, and we're going to preach through all of these verses one day, God willing, if Christ doesn't come back soon. Um, We'll do Romans after Genesis, though. Okay. (laughs) Deuteronomy 7, I want to point out later, later, God's going to tell the Israelites, as they are constituted as a nation, as they're going into the promised land, notice what he's going to say to them. This is to the nation. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, And clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. When and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. What? You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. What's he saying? You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But this is how you will deal with them. Break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. God's not embarrassed of these verses. Let me just say that. Nor should he be. God flooded the world. Why would God say just kill these people? He killed everything that breathed. We already covered it. He's perfectly capable of killing everything that breathes. And he's in, within his rights. The challenge with Israel that we get to as we go forward is as this geopolitical nation is a theocracy of which God is using. And instead of using the waters of the flood, he's going to use his people ostensibly who are obedient to him to accomplish his purposes. And that's terrifying. But what he's saying to them is there won't be any compromise. Now, what does this mean? Let me just, let me just take a step back. Ge- geopolitically, we want to have world peace. God's like, I don't I want world peace. I want world perfection, and I'm going to get it. We, God's going to bring a dictator who's going to rule with a rod of iron named Jesus Christ. 
And there will be perfect peace on his terms. There will be no compromise. There will be no, you know, sanctions against nations. There's going to be a straight, brutal, and wonderful peace from a perfect government that's going to come, that is yet to come. And Israel was meant to be a preview of this, but they failed so miserably. And if you miss that context, it's just going to look like Islam. And so these geopolitical concerns are interesting. One day, God will use the Israelites to judge and destroy those people in the land. But that day hasn't come yet. That day is not in place at at, at the time that we're reading. And where we are in our passage, that day hasn't come. It's not there. Look what's going on now. So they're sitting there, and God told them nothing of the sort. He's just said, hey, go to Bethel. And they're like, no, we'll hang out here. And then there's consequences to the compromise. And what happens? What's the casualty then? The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. Underline deceitfully. The, the sin in this passage is not necessarily the violence. You know, folks, folks always say, and, and this is the case, Islam is wrong because look how violent it is. Notice that we're presupposing that there ought not to be violence. Islam is wrong because Allah doesn't exist and the Quran is false. That's why it's wrong. It's not wrong because it's violent. That dictates that it's a violent religion. Follow this, okay? It's wrong because it's not true. The violence in this passage, geopolitically, we have, we're, America is one of the most warlike countries in the history of the world. We fight wars all the time. We have tons of soldiers in here. War is, the, the nations are given the ability to wield the sword. This isn't a church in the Old Testament, it's a nation. And it's being formed, and there's geopolitical concerns. Violence in this passage isn't necessarily the problem, but there's something else that is a problem. Pay attention. They deceitfully answer Hamor. And say because then the reason they do so is because they defiled their sister Dino. Notice what they just did. They just compromised again. Rather than hold to the truth, they joined in. So Hamor defiled their sister, so they're going to deceive them. And there's no lines of sin in, in every case. We're not supposed to do this. And says, and they said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who's uncircumcised. Now not only do they lie deceitfully, but then they're going to talk about circumcision. He says, You in other words, you need to be circumcised so that you can become our people. Go get circumcised. And what's so despicable about this is what they do. So the sign of circumcision. This is the only reference to any religious symbolism in the entire chapter at all is circumcision. No God, no faith, no prayer, but circumcision is mentioned. And we see circumcision earlier in the Bible, and we see it referenced as a way to show who was part of God's covenant promises uh, of the future. And this is really what, what it meant to be a, a part of the covenant promises in Israel. And these guys... These, these guys took that wonderful picture and they defiled it. And they said, hey, you guys get circumcised and then we'll all be one. And they're lying to them. Their words pleased them. They delighted in these things. And we can see that the people that Jacob was, that they were dealing with here were, uh, you wanted to like blend in together and say, hey, we'll become their people and we'll have all their stuff too. So like everyone's kind of bad. One guy raped the girl wants to marry her. And uh, then they're like, hey, and we'll get all their stuff. And these guys are saying, you guys will be one with you because if you get circumcised, we can all be one. And so they're showing the hypocrisy. There's no change of heart. There's no joining Israel. There's no promises. There's no preaching about God. There's no faith on these guys' parts. It's just pure religious hypocrisy. And so they go get circumcised. And on the third day, verse 25, when they're sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, and his brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure 
and killed all the males. Why did it feel secure? Because they deceitfully lied to them about circumcision. And they killed everyone. They killed the males of the city. And then they didn't just take vengeance because remember what we see in Deuteronomy. It says destroy everything, break their altars, do, just like don't be a part of them at all because they'll cause you to compromise. What do they do? They kill all the males. And then what do they do? Verse 27, then the sons of Jacob, this would be all of his sons likely, came upon the slain. So they, they cruised through the city after all these guys are dead and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. So they, look at their logic here. They defiled our sister. So we're justified in doing this. And they took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever's in the city and in the field, all their wealth and all their children and their wives and all that was in the house they captured and plundered. So now, remember the whole thing is don't intermarry when you go to the land. Now what do they have? A bunch of pagan wives, a bunch of pagan children, and the whole community, like the very thing God doesn't want to have happen, they did. What's the point? What, why, what is so significant for us that we ought to pay attention to? Go to James chapter 1, verse 19 for a moment. James chapter 1, verse 19. What is the sin in this chapter ultimately that we see? Or the, what's the casualty in this passage? Is it the, the people that died? Look what James says in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, your anger doesn't make you right. Instead, he says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness Meekness is a, a powerfulness that's unused, a meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. In other words, recognize things that are happening, recognize you have the power to take revenge and take vengeance, but instead hear the word of God and trust that God who said vengeance is mine, I will repay. In other words, even more so though, his question about the anger of man not producing the righteousness of God, this is truly what's happening in the story of Dinah. Again, they were so angry that they justified in their mind slaughter everyone, and then what do they do? They unite with the people that they're very, the whole thing they're upset by doing, they do. And then they also take the one religious symbol, they besmirch, that's a lovely word, by the way, besmirch, the, the, the name of God, the, the picture that God has, they just, they crushed it, they ruined it, they, they brutalized it. What does this have to do with us? We're like, I'm not going to go kill a village anytime soon. They were motivated because of the compromising situation they were in, not by the word of God, not by the promises of God. They were motivated by expediency. They'd already compromised. And the casualty here was their discernment. You're like, that doesn't seem very big of a deal. Oh, it's a big deal. What does it look like to lose our discernment because of compromise? Well, we're living it right now. Now, if you can do so, I'd ask you to do so right now. Put politics just aside for a moment, just for a moment. This whole ridiculous debate about gun control based on school shootings is a classic example of this. Let me tell you why. I don't care what you think about guns. I don't care if you think this. The whole reason that we're talking about gun control is because compromise, and we don't want to see the real causes of it. The consequences of our compromise, the sexual revolution that we've had in our country has led to real consequences and real casualties. What's happened? Well, all of a sudden, we need to have abortion because a woman has to be able to 
have sex with whoever she wants with no consequences. So we have millions of babies being slaughtered in our country right now. Why? Because we should be able to do whatever we want. And that's led to the devaluing of marriage. Divorce is rampant, but also homes. People are having kids now without needing to have a home because we've said we're individuals. We don't need to have families. How dare you tell me how a man should act, a woman should act, or what they need? And so fatherless homes are on the rise. And so in, one, in one case, we're looking at something like 44% or something like that are going to be fatherless homes in our, our country. But here's the big rub that bothers me so much. Essentially, in virtually every case, you could Google this and look this up. Every school shooting, you know what they had in common? It wasn't stupid bump stocks and this and that. Half of them were with it. You know what they had all in common? Fatherless homes. Almost every single shooter, almost every single one, to a T, did not grow up in a home with their father in the home. Do you hear that very much? Why wouldn't we want to talk about that? Because if we say that, what do we have to address? That as a culture, we've compromised and be some so pagan that we could say, you could be a guy, you could be a girl, you don't need a marriage, you don't need to be a husband, you have two mommies, two daddies, you could do this, you could that, you don't need to have any discipline in the home, you don't need to have God anywhere at all. Oh, but it's okay, the school shooting started out because we have all these guns. We had guns 30 years ago. It's not, I'm not saying anything hardcore. And you could want to get rid of guns, but to think that that's the, the knee-jerk reaction, you've lost your discernment. The church has lost its discernment because the church is jumping in all this crap. Of all the people that should be able to look at the, the, the actual casualties, the actual, just the, the actual things that have blown out because of our compromise, the church should be pointing it out. Hey, we got rid of God. No one talks about God anymore. Why is there so much immorality? I don't know. We got to fight injustice. What? Do you see this? This is who we are. This is what they did. We're the same place. We're in the same spot. Listen, the, the casualty of compromise is the inability to discern that godliness, godlessness leads to what? Ungodliness. Is that that complicated? And does it take courage for you to have to say that? Oh man, if you say it on the Twitter space, I'm sure that someone will jump on you about it. How dare you? We need to stop praying. We need to do something. Really? Well, then let's do something. Stop having sex outside of marriage. How about that? Guess what would happen? I don't know. That would fix it all. What would be fixed with that? I'm very certain that abortion would be not a big deal. I'm pretty sure fatherless homes would probably not be a big deal because we just said that if you have a Kids in marriage, what else would not be a big deal? But why would we say that that's impossible? That's impossible, Matt, because we have to compromise. Is this too political? I, I mean, I don't think it is. I think this is exactly what the consequences of living in our culture are. And it comes into the church. It has no place in the church. And people come into the church and they expect me to, to kowtow to the, the talking points of the media today. And the Bible is an alien book to that type of idea. There's no compromise Well, what, what did it all come from? Verse 30 is the most shocking verse of the whole chapter. And that's, a, that's saying something. So Jacob responds. In verse 30, these are the first words Jacob spoken in the whole chapter. He was silent. Why was he so silent? Why was he silent when everything happened? And now he speaks, and he says, man, this is terrible. You guys are bad. can't believe Dinah was raped. What you did was wrong. Then you deceived them. What are you doing? What is this bleeding of sheep I hear? What are you doing with all these people? What, what's going on here? He didn't say any of that. What did he say? 
You brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. And they said, the brother said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Jacob's given up all leadership, just like the church has. He was silent, just like the church is silent regarding these things. And then when something does happen, his concern was purely based on the PR fallout from those things happening. Why? Why? Go to 1 Corinthians 5. I mean, how does this relate to us? People don't like this verse, this section either, but it's in the Bible, so let's talk about it really quick. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is aghast talking to the Corinthian church, and he says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. He's like, can you believe that? Not only is there sexual immorality among you, but I'm getting a report of it. And it's of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife, so it's incestuous. And you're arrogant? How could they be arrogant? Because in this case, the Corinthian church was so compromised with sin that when it came into their midst, they're like, God's grace is good. It's all good. We're all crazy. Who cares? Just come on into the church. We're not going to look at this stuff. It's all good. And then they boasted about it. They're arrogant about their tolerance and their love. And Paul's telling them, you're arrogant. You should be mourning. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Listen, he's talking about church discipline with this unrepentant person. How do I know that compromise has made us silent like Jacob? Because churches don't practice discipline anymore. Discipline, the idea that a church would set someone out into the culture that's unrepentant until they repent as a means of restoration That idea is the privilege of any church membership, of any belonging to the church. You can be at our church today, and you can avoid discipline by not being a part of things, because we won't know. But it's your privilege, it's your privilege to be a part of the church in such a way that discipline could come upon you as an act of mercy, as an act of restoration. Do we believe God's real? Do we believe these things are true or not? You know? Compromise has made us silent like Jacob, but why? Why, are, why was Jacob silent? Why are we silent? What is the character behind this compromise? Go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. When Christ was standing before the people, they asked him, who he was, and he says in verse 35, Jesus said to them, the light, speaking about himself, is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. We're told as a church not to hide our lights under a basket, to proclaim the truth. This is the unvarnished, unmediated truth, the truth of God. We're supposed to do that and shine a light. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. All right, that's exciting. And then when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. That's shocking. Though he had done so many signs, this is why he hid from them, because though he had done so many signs before, then they still did not believe in him. So the word 
By the prophet, Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Why, why is this here? Well, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, nevertheless, speaking of this, this is a key here, verse 42, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. Well, that's great! Ah, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why is that? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Listen, we say we love Jesus as a church, as people, but then we accept defilement through our compromises. We say that we love Jesus and we accept the loss of our discernment through compromise. And we say we love Jesus and we live in diffident silence because of our compromise. All so that we don't get a mean tweet, a bad review, a thumbs down. There's more. Thankfully, I didn't stop the sermon there. Amen. All right, hallelujah. Look at chapter 35. There's just a few verses. Everyone's talking. It's all bad. Nothing's good. Where was God this whole chapter? He was there the whole time. I'm not preaching a sermon with a moralism telling us, y'all need to be strong or don't, don't ever compromise. That's true. You shouldn't. But you're still going to, and I'm still going to, and we're going to feel bad about it. And every church is mixed and weird and hard and there's not a perfect thing till we get to heaven so then what's the point we'll look at chapter 35 god said to jacob remember the bible didn't have chapters originally so as you're reading the story you just read this whole thing all of a sudden god pops in god speaks god's word pops in and that's what happens whether wherever you've been compromised today whatever you happen here's god speaking he says to jacob jacob get up arise go to bethel and dwell there Stop this half-hearted obedience. Go where I told you in the beginning and make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Go back to the word, follow the word. And so Jacob does this. Listen to what happens. He says to his household and to all who are with them, these murderous, terrible people, the victims, the perpetrators, all of it. He's telling this to the pagans that are now living with him, with all the sheep and their wealth, all of that. He says to all of them, listen, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Put them all away. No compromise. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. Jacob woke up. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Notice that they were all idolatrous. Dinah was probably idolatrous. The, the, The people were idolatrous. But what I love about this is that he tells Jacob, go to Bethel and do what? Make an altar. Make an altar, a memorial thing. He's essentially saying, go to Bethel and make an altar. I'm going to show you the cure for your compromise. Go to Philippians chapter 2. And that's what we're doing. If you remember on Easter Sunday, I told you that Jesus told the, the, his followers on the road to Emmaus in the upper room, he said, well, let me show you where I am in the Old Testament. He opened the scriptures to them. Imagine sitting with Jesus and saying, Jesus, what about Genesis 34? You can't possibly be in Genesis 34. He goes, just look a little further. What do you mean, Jesus? 
build an altar. An altar, what do you mean? Genesis 34 is drawing us to this moment where God says to Jacob, Behold the cure. It says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Great, that's exciting. But look, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Behold the cure. Behold the one who never compromised, even to the point of death, that was obedient to the point of death on a cross. The point of Genesis 34 is to say, you'll never, never compromise. You'll never do it because we do. The purpose is build an altar to the one who never compromised. That's the cure. And there's more. Go to Mark chapter 15, build an altar. Why? Look at verse 33. Build an altar. What's hap- what happens at an altar? Sacrifice does. Sacrifice is what happens on an altar. It's not an altar to victory. It's not a, a gold trophy. <laughs> what do we see when we go to the altar? What do we see? We see the cost. When you would go to an altar back in the Old Testament, you would take a lamb, a year old. They're really cute lamb. If you like Google a year old lamb, they're really cute. And it had to be spotless, so it couldn't be an ugly one. And you go before the priest on an altar, and you'd say, here's my lamb. And they say, okay, put your hand on the lamb's head. And you'd say, put your hand on the lamb's head, okay. And then you confess your sin over the lamb. You're like, oh, man, the other day I looked at something I shouldn't have looked. I did this. And while you're saying this, the priest cuts its throat right in front of you. Look, when we make a movie and an animal looks hurt in the movie, you're like, no, animals were hurt. Watch out. And I don't think you should hurt animals, Okay. You don't need to email me. I, get, I know that you're not supposed to hurt animals. That's what, why would we see this at an altar? Because we're supposed to behold the real cost of our compromise. When the sixth hour had come, we're, we're given an altar. It all points forward to the cross. And when the sixth hour had come, and there's darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You would imagine that Jacob and his sons would be forsaken in this moment, and they should have been. And if you've compromised like I've compromised, you all feel the same way I feel, that we ought to be forsaken, and we still feel so overwhelmed. And yet he says, go to the altar and look at the cost. And Jesus Christ looked at the Father, and when everyone turned his back on him, the Father himself, he cries out to the one who never, he never compromised, he followed with. And God looked at his son and he became sin in that moment to God. He considered him sin. And Jesus sees him and he's crying out. The only person he could turn to is he's being humiliated on the cross and God turned his back on him. We say, why would God do that? Because he's never going to turn his back on any of us ever because he did it here. That's the cost. That's the altar. Jesus became our compromise and he faced it for us. Behold the cost. Behold the one who took our compromises. But there's one more point. Go to John chapter 16. 
The scripture is about Christ. It's not a book of moralisms. It's not a book about try harder. It's a book about behold the altar. It's a book about you're the worst. Look at the one who's the best. (laughs) Why do we behold the cross? Why do we do this? Why do we go through all this? Look at John 16, verse 31. Jesus says to his disciples, he answers them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and leave me alone. What's happening is the hour is going to come when you're going to compromise. If you're sitting here right now, you've sinned and you know it, and maybe you've felt guilty. Hopefully you felt guilty for your sin the way I do as I preached this passage, as I studied it. Do you know what it's like to sit in your office alone with these verses in your head, just feeling just pinned to the ground? And I'm so comforted when Jesus tells them, you're going to compromise. You're going to go get scattered abroad. You're going to compromise. You're going to leave me. You're going to forsake me. But I've said these things to you. What does he say? But I'm not alone. The Father is with me. And I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the midst of them being scattered, in the midst of the compromise and the sins, in Christ you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. My friends, God says to Jacob, behold the cross, behold the true victory over compromise. Let's take a quick look at a video. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Genesis 34. We thank you that it ends with Genesis 35, those first verses. Lord, I first ask that we would be willing to go to your word when it's not convenient. We would recognize that we don't need to compromise with corruption and that it's going to cost us to hold true to your word. But Father, all of us fall short of this. We sin. We compromise. Sometimes a little sin, it leads to a bigger one. Some of us have been in a place where we just ended up and we're in the wrong place and we've been there for 10 years. And the consequences of our disobedience are being felt every day and we feel distant, we feel forsaken. But God, I'm so thankful that you point us to the cross. And I ask God that your gospel would be so vibrant to us. That we would recognize the truth about compromise, recognize the truth about who you are, and then we would see our failure, and we would see the ickiness, and we would see the ugliness, and then, Father, your cross would hit us with so much glory. And God, I know so, it's so easy to be indifferent and unmoved by things, but I'm so thankful for chapters like Genesis 34 that remind us about the glory of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Christ in our lives. I ask for those who don't know you today that they would be saved, that they would put their faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and be saved and be a part of your church. And I ask for those who know you today that we would be encouraged today by these things. In Jesus' name, amen.